listen, honey, listen, honey. Listen, honey, listen, honey. Listen, honey. Hey, everybody. I hope that you guys are having a phenomenal week. I know that, uh, God, I've just been having such a crazy week, not only with my schedule of Dancing with the Stars and also um, shooting the reel, but this podcast has been a saving grace because it allows me to just stop my entire world and just learn and and live through the journey of somebody who I find super interesting, which is all the guests that you guys have seen me um, share with you in the past few weeks. And today's guest is someone pretty supreme, someone I've, I've, I've never had somebody of this type of uh, talent join me on this podcast before. So I want to tell you guys about Chuck Johnson. So Chuck Johnson is an international action film actor who's actually based in Tokyo, Japan. He's from Michigan, but he began martial arts training with Olympic Taekwondo at the age of 15. And with a crazy fanatic training schedule, he's received a black belt in two and a half years and six days later became the Michigan State Junior Olympic Taekwondo champion for both sparring um, for, uh, and forms. So uh, Chuck Johnson, welcome to Listen Honey, man. And thank you for calling us and, and, and joining me all the way from Japan. No, thank you. Thank you. And before I say anything else, I just yes. got to tell you, I, I watched your, your cha-cha and your salsa and your tango on Dancing with the Stars. And I just got to say that you crushed it. You really You swear. It. Are you being serious, dude? Because I'm being, I, oh, I'm being, that means so totally much. Serious. No, I was just going to say, I mean, just because I, I, from what I know, we're around the same age, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, as somebody who comes from a physical performance background, to see you learn multiple styles of dance like that and then to perform them one by one, it's just, especially if you don't come from a physical performance background, like that's just, that's incredible. I mean, you just, you crushed it. So, Chuck, right now, I'm going to tell you right now, you have no idea how much you just uh, like warmed my heart because yes, it is so difficult to learn something. Not only, it's not like a two-step where you're just moving side to side, but there's an art to to every style of dance that you have to get down. Obviously, I'm never going to swivel my hips like a real salsa dancer who spent their life training or even cha-cha like the best of them. But to do it and get criticized in front of social media and those damn judges, yo, it's it's crazy. Yeah, it's very humbling. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. About uh, maybe four months ago, I did, yeah. I did a. Uh, it was a samurai action comedy musical, huh. and I had and I had to learn how to dance, right? And I've been doing physical movement for for like twenty years, right? Mainly yeah, about yeah. like kicking people in the head, right? But right, right. Even as somebody who's been moving for 20 years, having to learn three dance numbers was terrifying. Yeah. How, what kind of dance do you do with oh, samurai? Oh, I mean, it was just... Sword acting. It was just, it was, it was kind of like a comedy, a comedy musical. So there'd be all these fight scenes and then we'd be just breaking the dances, right? But I'm completely not a dancer at all, right? And like, even, you know, coming from a fight choreography background, it was so hard to learn. You know, so I just, and looking at the complexity of what you were doing and how long they were, it was just, it was incredible. It was very, very Wow, good. that's so cool, man. Just to add to your list of, of things that you've taken part in, I mean, that's something totally unique on its own. So, and then let's just talk about, uh, you know, I don't know if you guys can see this when you actually see this podcast air, but behind you, Chuck, you've got weapons and all these equipment. I even saw boards to your right. Talk to me about this room that you're yeah. in. yeah. 
Okay, this is this is just my my home office, but you know, I mean, I've I've got my own stunt team, and then we we produce a lot of our own stuff. So I mean, that just means that we have to have a lot of weapons. So I basically just have a house full of weapons. Like I've got this huge rack of nunchucks and like you know swords and spears and and just all that kind of stuff. So, you have ninja and this stars. Is like the, the I know I that's very Hollywood, but ninja stars. Is there is there an yeah, art to I've throwing the ninja stars? Is that just very Hollywood? Oh, no, no, there, there is. They're actually quite hard to use. So, I mean, it takes a lot of skill to be able to th- throw those things. So, wow. And what are yeah. those um, long rods behind you? And this, okay, and these, this sword the, looking Okay, thing. there's one of them is, is a Japanese uh, staff uh, bow. The other two are called yari, which are Japanese spears. So I don't know anyone, I don't know any Westerner that knows how to use Japanese spears. So like figuring these things out has kind of been like a a quest of mine recently. I know how to use a katana well, or like Japanese swords, but uh, I just don't know anybody that knows how to do it, which means I just want to learn how to do it, right? So, yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Okay, so let's talk about this insane path that first of all got you into martial arts, then becoming so dang good that, I mean, you, your action career launched in 2004. You were scouted by a talent agency for your martial arts skill. You were cast in Godzilla Final Wars. And then you met a Japanese action director who shortly after, began his, after you began your study of East Asian style fight choreography, which kind of took off to where you're describing now to me all this paraphernalia that you've got around you. Yeah. So yeah. being born in Michigan, let's just start here because I got to be honest. Um, I remember taking martial arts when I was younger and there was all Asian kids in my class. Mm -hmm. And then later on when we went to championships and you fight with other, you know, you compete with other leagues. I never saw anybody out of the Asian descent, maybe a white kid here and there, but never black. So Chuck, tell me what led you to take on martial arts. And did you see a lot of black representation in, in your classes? So the reason that I got, I got into it is because when I was in high school, uh, you know, okay, well, 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 backtracking. Okay? okay. So originally the reason that I got into it is because, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm from Detroit originally, you know, and Detroit, especially back then, it's a lot, it's, it's getting nicer now, but it was just a rough place, you know, where, where sometimes bad things can happen, you know? So when I was like 12, I discovered Jackie Chan movies and I figured out that somebody had actually systemized fighting. You know, like I saw somebody do a spin kick and I was like, oh my God, that's incredible. I want to learn this stuff. But, you know, I mean, so for, for starters, all I was doing was just watching Jackie Chan movies and kind of like, like imitating it and all that. And then I saw somebody do the split and I thought that was super cool. And I asked my mom, I was like, how do I do that? And she's like, well, you just have to stretch. So then I just started stretching every day, like intensely. And then by the time I was 13, I could already do the splits in every direction, right? So then I was still just imitating these, these Jackie Chan movies. And then... After that, I moved out of Detroit and moved into a suburb called Okemos. And then uh, my best friend was, was uh, Korean American. And actually, it's interesting because, you know, I, I heard a little bit about, you know, you talking about how you had to basically like learn English through watching TV and things like that. Sesame Street and reading Rainbow, baby. Exactly, exactly. And he went through the same journey that you did. So I could already kind of empathize with your background from what I saw him go through. But he... Uh, he was really good at Taekwondo. And then he brought one of my other friends in for a trial lesson. And then I thought, well, if they're doing it, I want to do it. So then I just tried it. But because I'd been watching these, I'd been imitating Jackie Chan movies for a long time, I could already kind of kick it and I could already do the splits. 
So I just took to it hypernaturally, you know, and I'd never, at the time I was like a C, you know, C plus, maybe C minus C plus average student in school. I'd never been good at anything. And all of a sudden I had something that I was good at and that I was like, actually not just good at, but like better than average at. And I'd never had that before. So then I just super fell in love with it, you know, and then I, and then I just started doing it like really, really, really intensely. And then, cause I was doing that really intensely all of a sudden, you know, my, my grades started getting better in school because my focus was better. You hear a lot about those statistics, right? When kids get in the right extracurricular activities, it enhances everything else around them, right? Not only is it mental therapy, but they actually feel motivated and maybe even more confident to take on the other things more actively. What do you think it specifically was for you that made your grades go up when normally people would think that these lessons would take you away from studying? Actually, it took me a while to figure it out. But what it was, was because I was training so much, all of a sudden I had less time to study. So I thought, I don't have as much time to study. So let me study right now. So I actually, it was, it was the added challenge. And then one of the things that I, I figured out, and then, you know, now I teach Taekwondo too. And then I, I learned from my own lessons is that there's some kids who have a hard time in school because it's too hard. And then there's other kids who have a hard time in school just because it just doesn't, that style of learning doesn't fit them. Mm. But then there's this third group of kids who have a, who don't do well in school because there isn't enough challenge. You know, like they need, they, in order to be motivated, they need to be challenged. Yes. And I figured out that I actually fell into that third group. You know, like I'm not necessarily, I'm not good if I'm not challenged. You know, have you, have you ever heard of the concept of, of flow? Not really. Explain it to me. Okay. So I read this book called Happier, which was an amazing book. And one of the things that they talk about in this book is how to find flow. And flow is when you get in this, this point where you lose, where you're so immersed in an activity that you lose sense of time. Right. Um, and, and basically what they're saying is the way that that happens is that it's, it's, it's a point that exists on a vector between difficulty and skill level. And, you know, if something is too easy, then you can't focus because you get bored. But if it's too hard, you can't focus because you get frustrated. So the key is that you have to find this point where that it's, it's just hard enough that if you super, 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 super focus, then you can pull it off. And that's the point where people find happiness. That's where they find that extreme focus wow. and that extreme concentration is finding that point right? No so way. usually, yeah. So, and for me, I figured out that my flow vector, it's, it's really high. I need extreme challenges in order to find focus. And if I don't have extreme challenges, I just, I can't, I just can't focus. I watched a little bit about your story and about, you know, when you create, when you created Mac out loud, right? Yes. <laughs> you know, back in the day, right? Yeah. And like, I thought, I thought, okay, this must be somebody who has a very high flow vector just because like you're I mean that must have been such an incredible challenge because nobody had done it before right which is probably exactly why you did it is because nobody had done it before <laughs> right I'm so impressed oh, my god and by the way what uh Chuck is referring to is Mac Out Loud was a a concept that I came up with when I worked at Mac Cosmetics as a makeup artist if you guys watch my Hello Honey on YouTube basically I created this concept in order to instead of teaching one person by doing one makeup one at a time at these average makeup counters I created this concept to do kind of a out loud stage performance where you 
do one person's makeup, but you're on a speaker and a system so that everybody could hear exactly what your technique was, what brushes you were using. It's essentially YouTube without online YouTube. And it's still a concept that's used today. So you're absolutely right with that. I always love being challenged. And I'm going to relate to your experience with something that happened this last week on Dancing Mm -hmm. with the Stars. Mm -hmm. So every dance that I've done, the salsa in the lime green outfit, the cha-cha, and then later the Viennese waltz with the up um, the, uh, the demonstration from the Up movie was very challenging. There were moves, twists, turns that I've never known before. So I was very engaged. And to my, uh, my recollection of it, I was focused and present the whole time that I gave aces across the board with my level of performance that I'm proud of. That tango, which was this last week, was my most disappointing attempt at that, my most disappointing performance to me. And what's funny is I learned that tango in half the time as the other dances. And I actually didn't have to redo it over and over as much because I had it down to the point that on the day of my partner and I, normally we would be practicing it over and over again, but we kind of just did it. And we were like, you got it. You keep doing it the same way. You got it. Don't burn it out. And I tripped up on the day of the performance, as you saw the judges pointed out and gave me lower scores. And I was fucking devastated about this Chuck like I cannot express to you how much I moped about this in the most bad form like complete bad attitude way and Brandon looked at me and he was like that routine was too easy for you I'm not going to give you easy ones anymore and I was like what the hell are you talking about don't up the challenge for me I'm not an actual dancer I don't want these to be harder and he's like no they have to be a little bit a little bit challenging for you to actually stay engaged because that one was too easy for you and somewhere there that's why you messed up but I understand what you're saying because I agree with him that that dance was a little bit of the easiest for me. There was just, I don't know, the formation of it, the things, I, I was just better at it, but I didn't do my best at it. So vector flow is what you called it, right? Yeah, or just flow. It's, flow. it's just called flow. Yeah. Okay, I'll have to look into that. All right, so you figured out your, you figured out that you were really good at Taekwondo and you figured out that it was challenging enough to keep you engaged and now benefit the rest of the areas around your life. Then what? So then basically I was like, okay, so I got my black belt. And then six days after I got my black belt, I was, I was already a state champion. Right. So then I was like, okay, well, if I'm already the state champion, there's no point in, in fighting anybody at this level anymore. Like I got to go higher. Pause I gotta go really harder. quick with your friends, yeah. the friend that introduced you to it, the Korean American guy, was he like, yeah, what the actual fuck is happening? And then what about your parents? what they say? What did your uncle say? What are these people saying when you come home as this black kid in a freaking karate get up like what what are they saying taekwondo get up <laughs> yeah yeah it was i mean it was it was cool everybody my parents they didn't think i would actually stick with it you know so uh you know i'm the youngest of of six kids so and with a lot of my older brothers and sisters nobody you know really went that far with anything athletically right so they're like well you know he'll probably do it for a little while and then he won't necessarily stick with it but my mom just signed me up for a three-year contract because it was just cheaper per month (laughs) so and then within that three years i was already a state champion so then they're like all right well maybe maybe this is maybe this is a serious thing maybe he's taking this seriously so then with my my best friend that got me into it he went to korea and then when he went to Korea, he came back six months later, like a monster. So then I was like, all right, well, if he can do that, then I want to go do that too. So then I said, all right, I'm going to just go to Korea, you know? But at the time, like I was this kid, like I hadn't even, 
when I started Taekwondo, I couldn't even eat at like Asian restaurants, right? Because the food was like, whoa, what kind of food is this? You know what I mean? Right, like, right. like I just go, I just get like the rice and people be like, it's, it's actually pretty good. You should try the food. Because you've the got food. fermented cabbage and you've got <laughs> squid and you got heads on fish. It's a lot. <laughs> exactly, right? Like it was just for me, it was intense, right? You see like tentacles and stuff in the food. But I was like, all right, if I'm going to do this Taekwondo thing, then like going to Korea is just it. Because at that time, even high school level Korean players were better than like national champions in other countries, right? So I thought if I do this, I'm just going to come back a beast. So I'm going to just go to Korea and I'm going to just figure it out. So I just hopped on a plane and just went to Korea and just found places to train and then just spent a little while getting my ass kicked, basically. <laughs> but I learned wow. a lot, you know, yeah. I learned a lot culturally and I was, and I was able to really absorb a lot of, of the, the beauties of Korean culture, right? So, and like, I just don't, I mean, I spent a long time get, getting my ass kicked for lack of better words, but I just don't regret that at all. Phenomenal learning experience. Absolutely. I, I can only imagine. All right, we got to take a break, but when we come back, I want to hear, let's dig into some of these learning experiences culturally, because there is a huge unspoken discussion out there about the black community within the Asian community, the differences, the discussions that aren't being had, and the anti-blackness straight up in Asian communities that I want to bring up and, and ask you about. So we'll take a break and we'll be back with Chuck Johnson. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back to Listen, Honey. I am with Chuck Johnson, who has an incredible action career, incredible history in Taekwondo. But not only that, in addition to holding the rank of master in Olympic Taekwondo, he's also ranked in capoeira and karate, kabuto and judo. And you've also appeared in over 50 dramas, films, commercials and video games in Asia and the States. And yo, you can also speak read and write in Chinese, Japanese, and Korean. I, yeah. I, I got to tell you, that is unbelievable. So let's go, we'll go back to when you were living in Korea. So mm -hmm. here you are. I, I mean, just give us, give us a visual now of, of, of your build, your look, because if anybody's been to Seoul, I, I would imagine you were around Seoul, right? Was it South mm -hmm. Korea? Yeah. Right. Okay, so you've got... Everybody's Korean. Everybody's maybe, you know, I mean, everybody's yeah. very typical looking Korean. You know, paint that visual. So, so give me, what, what do you look like? How tall are you? How much do you weigh? Like when you're walking down the streets of Korea, what did you look like? Okay, so I'm, I'm about six foot two. Six foot two. I was, I was uh, at the time I was pretty muscular. So I still got a little bit now, but I mean, it's not, you know, hey. there's a big difference between 40, 40, 40 and 20, right? <laughs> so um, but at the time I was, I was, I was an athlete, right? So I was pretty muscular. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, I pretty much stuck out like a sore thumb, especially when I would go, because, you know, the thing about Taekwondo, especially at that time is, you know, a lot of these kids who were Taekwondo fighters, their only objective is just, is, is going to the Olympics for Taekwondo. Right. Or, or getting, yeah. getting medals. So these are kids that just train all the time. So 
for a lot of these kids, like they'd never even seen an African-American before, you know, they're like, yeah. right. And I'm like six inches bigger than everybody else too. That part. Right. Um, so, and then there's just all of the cultural differences and, and me having to get used to them and then them having to get used to me, but then doing it in a, in a context where we're all kind of there to fight, you know? So, you know, there's, there's that kind of like machismo and, and kind of aggression that goes with that, you know? Sure. So it was just, yeah, it was, uh, very interesting. <laughs> Did you face any, was, were there any differences that were difficult to navigate? Were there any stereotypes? Was there any judgment? Um, I mean, what kind of things did you notice as far as the difference in culture and how people treated you? I mean, there, there obviously were, because at that point, especially, and I mean, it's still true now, a lot of these people, their only conception of African-Americans is, is what they see on, is what they see on TV. You know, which necess- which isn't necessarily always good, right? Yeah. So, you know, you so a a lot of what my challenge was was to kind of overcome those kinds of of stereotypes, right? And then just to let people know that, like, all right, listen, I'm not here to steal anything from you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I just want to come here and just get good at taekwondo because I just love taekwondo. But I think one of the good things that I had going for me was because I was there for taekwondo. And, you know, the Korea, like, Taekwondo was the national sport, right? So everybody, I had a little bit more respect because I was doing something that Koreans are very proud of, you know? And then, of course, because my best friend was Korean, you know, I already knew a, a, little, about, a little bit about Korean culture. And, and I mean, I was still super American, <laughs> like, at the time that I went there, you know? But I knew a little bit about Korean culture, and that kind of helped me through some of the challenges as well. So, but it was still just a lot to learn because you know people every country you go to people do things so differently yeah you know and and kind of people gestures are different and the style of communication is different and the style of thought is so different you know do you find that within the art of taekwondo in in uh, just you know when you're when when you walk into the room do do you notice anything different do people question your talent or your ability or is it because you can kick some ass nobody even questions it i mean how how is it there in within the community of taekwondo yeah at that time nowadays i think there's a lot more um diversity yeah i think there's a lot more diversity and like at the time people were just start kind of just starting to come to korea like the people that knew what they were doing like knew you had to go to korea to train but nowadays i'm sure there's just tons of people there who go. Um, so it's not, you know, it's, it's not as big of a deal, but at that time, basically like when I would walk in the room, these people were like, who is this guy? And then, and then their, their basic attitude was like, all right, well, if you want to hang with us, then you need to hang. You know what I mean? Like there was just, and it was just kind of raw like that. Like if you didn't earn their respect, you didn't get their respect. And mm-hmm. basically you earn their respect by being able to fight. But then once you have their respect, everybody's cool. Wow. But you got to earn it. You know what I mean? Like they wouldn't just give it to you, you know? And it's, it's really interesting because in Korea, having to earn that respect was, was the challenge, right? Whereas right. when you're doing martial arts in Japan, it's, you know, people are very, in Japan, people are very, very kind of friendly and, and polite and welcoming of foreigners, but they also don't let you in as much, you know? So it's like, it's a different challenge, right? Like people will be really polite, but they don't take you very seriously. Yes. You know, so it's just, that's, this is just a completely different challenge than it was doing martial arts here and like learning 
to do fight choreography here versus learning martial arts in Korea. Interesting. So with 2020, uh, I'm no, actually, especially because of 2020, and then on top of that, the pandemic here in America, I don't know if you've heard, but there's been a rise in the tension between no four Asian Americans with COVID, yeah. especially since, you know, government and authority, we've had very specific people, including the president refer to it as the China virus or the Chinese virus. So then that's created racism and hate towards the Asian population. But then you've got the, you know, black lives matter and just the heightened, heightened, uh, um, attention towards the injustice going towards the black community. And now you've got protests where buildings and, and, and businesses are being burnt down and, you know, the whole world is in an uproar. So there's just been this, this tension, not only towards the black community and for Asians, but also within the Asian and the black communities together. You, we've, there's been many cases that have gone viral where Asians are, blaming black people for what's happening and, and, and angry with the buildings and, and, and things like that being tortured and, and burned down. But then Asians are being harassed and abused and beaten by black communities or people because they're being blamed for the riots or because of just whatever other personal reasons of, of things that happen out there in the streets. What do you think about the tension between black and Asian communities and how have you heard anything on that side when you're in Japan? How do people regard what's going on in America and it's specific to race? How do you handle that conversation yourself with friends and colleagues of yours that are of Asian descent or black? I think watching what's happening in the States, it's, it's like, I mean, it, it's like standing on one side of a river and then seeing the other side of the river, everything's on fire. Like that's what it, it looks like watching what's happening in the States right now. And it's just so tragic. Yes. You know, and yes. so ultimately unnecessary. And right. And like, the thing is, is for people within the Asian community, I, I can understand that they don't necessarily understand why black people are so angry. Cause in order to understand why blacks are so angry, you really have to understand black history. Right. And nobody really gets, a fair treatment on black history. You know what I mean? Like a lot of it was just kind of swept under the, the, the rug. And a lot of the things that led us to the point that we are today, were just never really well explained or never, or never even dealt with. Right. So, I mean, like the, the black lives matter movement, it's not something that just came up spontaneously. This is something that's just been building and building. I mean, like, even if you look at like, like Rodney King happened, like what, like 30, 40 years ago. And that was basically about the same thing. Same thing. It's the same thing, you know? So for people, especially older people within the Asian community, and I understand they're business owners who work really hard to build up their businesses, right? So of course, if those businesses get get disrupted, of course they're going to be angry and they're going to be upset, you know? So, but I think the other thing that people, you know, need to realize is that a lot of the people that were doing the damage within you know, that we're doing like the, the looting and a lot of those people weren't actually black. Right. <laughs> and then not only were, and that was it not, yeah. And then not only was it that, but I mean, even the people that were doing it, that were black, these weren't people that actually cared about the movement. These were just opportunists who were just taking care of chaos. 
And that's just all that it was, be, be of, of any race. You know, I think within the Black Lives Matter movement, there was a lot of people of a lot of different races that were trying to come together, you know, for the sake of unity. And then there was a lot of people that were just trying to, to break it down. Yeah. You know, and I think one thing that was really interesting is you had, um, I don't know if you, you saw what the K-pop community did. Yes. But they took the, uh, you know, some, yeah, Let's right? Like the K-pop community was, was like fully... Talk right behind exactly like the happened. black lives matter movement right Please, yes okay yeah so i mean um what what they did is a lot of the anti what the k-pop community did is a lot of the anti-black lives matter hashtags they just flooded them with with k-pop videos instead <laughs> right so anybody that was searching for that hashtag they just end up seeing k-pop videos you know and then and and at other times for like kind of you know anti-rallies or whatnot they would just buy all the tickets and then just not show up you know, so I think you had people on both sides that were that were actually trying to work together. And I think that's that's what we need more than anything. And I was I was talking to somebody not too long ago about the trans lives matter movement as well. Yeah. You know, so and ultimately, I think what you're dealing with is you're and especially now because of Corona, because now there's a lot more racism against Asians. So now you have all these different fractured groups of socially disenfranchised people yes but basically we're all dealing with the same stuff same so we're team. kind of all on the same team we're kind of all on the same team right so the, so we shouldn't be the ones that are fighting with each other you know what i mean like we need to be supporting each other and then basically saying like all right when somebody does something bad we need to look at that person as a bad person doing a bad thing Absolutely. and stop falling into stereotypes you know about about race but i mean even here in japan you saw you saw some news media that was really negative about the black lives matter movement and then you saw some news media that was very positive and it was trying to understand it it was bringing in black speakers and things because there were actually black lives matter protests here too which was interesting when you so. say here are you directing japan yeah like in tokyo and osaka there were actually black lives matters marches here too with asian people or asian and black yeah asian asians and black you know wow yeah i did so i did and not I think it, know that wait i can i say something Jeff? Yeah. i did not know that yeah. because when i was watching the news go down you know around march i'm sorry april may june july august more june july august i was waiting to see asian countries erupt in anger because you know you we saw it all over europe we saw these different uh, countries stand up as show their allyship, but I didn't see any in Asia, so I didn't know that Japan also held protests. Yeah, there were there was I think maybe five or six, um, wow. and some of them were actually quite large, you know. And because there's you know, and it wasn't just the thing that was cool is it, it was I think they were largely organized by African Americans that were living here. Yeah, but you know, the friends of those people, or the family of those people, and just the general community actually got behind it. And they were, they stayed completely, you know, peaceful. There was no, there was no violence or anything or, or nothing, no looting or anything to, a, to, that went along with the ones here. But there right. were actually, there was actually a movement here and right. Japan's biggest broadcaster NHK. Um, it was interesting. They had one show that was really negative about it. And then there was just a huge public outcry and then they apologized for it. And then they started doing really like good treatments on it and like bringing mm -hmm. in, you know, like expert experts to talk about it and and to really try to give it a fair treatment 
interesting. So it sounds like you guys have the same, I mean, just in that small example, it sounds like there's the same kind of structure of events that happen. For example, here, we'll see a misrepresentation somewhere, whether it's in the Oscars, you know, hashtag Oscars, so white, the award ceremony, or a network will seem like it's casted somebody, you know, of a different race to play a black person or, or, or to, you know, just do weird things that just seem like it, it, it keeps black people out of the opportunity, right? And then yeah. the people will speak. There will be an outcry. There will be a, a social media hashtag, the whole thing. And then you start to see little changes happening. You know what I mean? All of a sudden there's more black representation or all of a sudden there's advertisement that represent black people or black programming. So, so it's interesting to see that at least even in an Asian country, there are people within the community, whether it be black or Asian, also speaking up and then networks themselves changing their tune because that is where we influence the older Asian generation that we're talking about. The older ones exactly. that are the hardest, the ones that are so yeah. stuck in their ways. And right, that's so interesting. And I, I always wonder, because I think this is just a conversation with so much perspective to it, but do you feel there is an anti-blackness within Asian communities? And have you personally experienced it yourself? Yeah, I mean, I, I have. There's been times where, you know, here, where people haven't let me into restaurants. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I mean, and that hasn't happened like a lot. You know what I mean? Or, or there's yeah. that, that wow. you do have to deal with those kinds of negative stereotypes. Right? How? And, what do you do? I so I think all you can really do is just you stay polite, you know, and then you, you show people that whatever stereotype you had in your head, it's not necessarily accurate, or at least it's not accurate for me. You know, and I think like what what happens with people is oftentimes they get this idea and they see you and they're like straight up scared. Right. They're like, <laughs> but, you know, you just show them there's nothing to be afraid of. And you just you just stay courteous and you stay polite. And then eventually that's sort of like, all right, well, well, this guy's different. You know what I mean? And then after a while, they'll realize, OK, maybe it's not that he's different. Maybe they're not. Maybe as a people, they're not different. You know, and you just kind of make that change one person at a time. You know, and that's, that's really all you can be. Okay, so when you say that you, one example is got denied at a restaurant, my blood boils up. And if I were beside you, yeah. I mean, it could happen easily to my fiance, who is black. So if mm -hmm. that happens, immediately I feel the need to somehow project my anger. You know, it doesn't mean getting violent, but it means somehow making a scene there to show this person that that is not right. But you go the other route. You actually go polite and you, how do you feel that just kind of in this case, being polite, accepting it and, and, you know, leaving and not, you know, tweeting about it, not telling friends not to go there or whatever it is that might be. I'm not saying those are right answers, but these are mm -hmm. routes people go. How do you think that that actually influences that one person that not all black people are yeah. dangerous. Just, just so I yeah. learn, I want to hear how you see it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, of course, in that case, I did, I did go on social media and I did say something, you know, I went to this restaurant and then, you know, we were denied service for this and that. I mean, that, that was a while ago. Right. So, I mean, I think you do, you do have to kind of say things about things like that, but I think you also have to do it in a context to show that like, you're better. You know what I mean? That like, you're, you're a person whatever negative stereotypes they have about you, you know, not being able to control yourself or whatever fears that they have, that those fears, they don't apply to you at all. You know, you're, you're something that's better than that. 
Right. So, um, and then sometimes, you know, there's times where sometimes you can convince people and sometimes you can get people to turn around. And when they make that transformation, it's amazing. Like they love you to death. Right. Um, but sometimes you just can't change people, you know, and you're like, all right, well, you know, you, you, you pick your battles, you know, and you think, okay, wow. you know, in really, really fighting this, am I going to do more damage than I am solving the problem? And you just look at it analytically. And then you're like, all right, well, this battle is not worth fighting, you know, right, and right. But the other times, other times that battle is worth fighting, you know, like there's been times where it is worth fighting, you know, and there'll be times like, for example, when I would, when I would ask to, to be, to do a TV show or something, and then they would, the role they'd be giving me would be completely stereotypical and largely negative. And I would have to say, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to do that role because it's a negative perception. Like, I just, I can't do that. It looks bad. And then they'd be like, well, why? And then I would explain why. And then sometimes they'd actually change it, you know? Mm. And then sometimes they wouldn't. And there's times where I would just have to walk away from something because I'm like, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to do something that just, that contributes to negative stereotypes of anybody. You know yeah. what I mean? Oh, right. black folks. Right. So, um, That's definitely another to- way to handle the stereotypes. Absolutely. Have you ever heard of Daryl Davis? Daryl Davis? Mm, Daryl Davis. No, so... In in your approach to be kind, Daryl Davis was known to be this person who liked and looked forward to meeting members of the Ku Klux Klan. And in meeting them, he would actually like travel with them, befriend them, you know, break bread with them and whatnot, but slowly Uh, change their mind about, about Mm -hmm. obviously the community. So with you, it sounds like you, you move in that way where it's like, instead of proving to them and causing a scene to prove them who you are, just being it and continuing your life where you get other areas to influence mindset, that's where you can do so. Yeah. I think the thing that people fundamentally forget, right? And I mean, really it goes back to human programming because like uh, when I was was living in Hong Kong, I was studying uh, managerial decision-making and they talked about these cognitive biases that are built into everyone's thinking. And one of those biases is the in-group bias, which means that you're nat- everyone is naturally biased to assume that people in their in-group, whether that be racial, whether that be party lines or whatever, is correct and other people are incorrect, or that information from their group is more correct than information from the outside group or people in their group are nicer than people from the other group, whatever, you know? So everybody has this bias towards people within their own group. Right. And I think the best thing that you can do is show everybody that fundamentally you're the same that they are. Mm. You know what I mean? And like, oftentimes when I talk to these people that have obviously got this, this preconceived stereotype, you know, and their, 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 their way they're seeing me is stuck in the stereotype. The first thing I start doing is I talk about family because everybody cares about their family. You know, everybody has, everybody cares about their mom. Everybody cares about their kids. You know, every parent is basic. Every parent anywhere in the world is basically kind of going through the same experience, right? Totally. Of looking like, how do, how do I feed this child? <laughs> right? How do I keep them out of trouble? How do I get them to the good colleges? How do they get them focused on their studies? How do I? Yes. Exactly. So, I mean, I think what it's, what it's all about is when you meet people that are, that are really different, the first thing you have to do is you find a commonality. And I remember talking to this one time, there was uh, a friend of mine took me to meet like his, his grandfather, you know, this, this really old, old white dude. 
And like when I walked in the room, the look on this guy's face was terrified, <laughs> right? Like he's like, oh my God, oh my God, right? So, and I sat down next to him and then I started out and then he mentioned that he was a paratrooper. And I was like, oh really? I've been skydiving, skydiving's awesome. And he's like, oh, you've been skydiving? So then I spent the next 30 minutes talking to him about my skydiving experience and being like, wow, that must've been really amazing to do that for a living. You know, and just the way he just lit up and the way he opened up was just, it was phenomenal. And by the end, he, he, he's like, you know, you're so welcome here anytime. And I'm really, really happy to meet you. And, you know, I just think you're a really great guy. And I was really surprised and <laughs> this kind of thing. And I think that's what we need more of, you know, is, is we need, we just have to, to sit down. And like, like you said with, with, with Daryl Davis is like, just kind of br- let go of some of the anger and just break bread with people and be like, all right, well, you know, maybe I'm not here to yell at you. I'm just here to listen. And like, I just kind of want to know what's going on in your head and then why that's going on. You know, like I, I, I heard this expression a long time ago and it's, and it's that like, you know, God gave us all two ears and one mouth. Right. So what do you think the message is? You know, mm. we, we should always spend, we need to spend more time listening than talking. Right. Yes. So generally, Whenever I meet people, I just try to spend, you know, a lot more time listening to them than talking. Right. You know? and then, Be and slow then to speak, there, quick to listen. Those, yeah. Yeah. Right. And then you yeah. can find those points that you can connect with people and, and you can kind of start to br- break down those walls. You know, and some Absolutely. people, they're so locked into their thinking that they just yeah. can't or that it would take a super, super long time. And other people will actually adapt and, and change really quickly. You know, and when you can bring somebody, when you can show somebody that there's nothing to be afraid of, they just love you for that, you know, and then you turn somebody that could have been an enemy into a friend. I have to ask, Chuck, the fact that, yo, you're a man who came from Detroit, one of the roughest cities in the entire U.S., and then you get into martial arts, which... Yes, it can help people mentally release a lot of tension, but it can also create a, a inviting nature within people where they use it to protect themselves, right? And then now I'm talking to you where yeah. you're a master of many students and you've got equipment around you that can turn people into a bowl of ramen. So I want to understand how is it that you happen to have this calm, zen, you know, stay steady attitude especially when you face racism with your own community since you live out there in Asia. Do you think that these are some things that you learned from the martial arts mentality? Or do you think this is something that you were innately, like you raised with because of your parents? No, I, I think it's something that I, I mean, a little bit it was, was from my parents. I mean, um, of course, because I think I was just, I was very, very blessed in that um, I, had a, I had a mom who never raised her voice. She was always just calm. You know, um, she and she was just that kind of person. She had that kind of commanding, quiet authority to her. Um, but I do think a lot of it does come from martial arts, because the thing about martial arts, especially traditional martial arts, is that basically it isn't really about the fighting. Being able to fight is just is an output of it. But really, it's it's about the journey of trying to master this thing that's very, very, very difficult. Right. And, and just the, the, the time that you have to put into it and all that. And one of the interesting things is that people that are very, very good fighters are generally always really nice people. 
you know, because they know what it feels like to get punched in the face, you know, and they know what it feels like. Anybody who's been fighting a long time knows what it feels like to get beaten up, yeah. you know, and knows what it feels like to be a loser on a stage. Right. And I think a lot, a lot of human empathy comes from having suffered yourself. You know, yes. people that have been through a lot, they know what it feels like, right? right? So, you know, when you've been punched a lot, and when you've been kicked a lot, and when you've, for lack of better words, you just gotten your ass kicked, you know, it just humbles you. And it just, mm. you know, makes you care a little bit more about other people that you see suffering. You know, I mean, yeah. you've got those fighters that are cocky and arrogant and aggressive, yeah. but generally most fighters, if you sit down and you talk to them, they're, they're really calm, kind of nice people. Yeah. And I think part of it just, just comes from just being uh, calm in yourself and not feeling yes. threatened by anybody else. Cause you know that if you had to, you could beat anybody up. <laughs> so nobody this threatens is so true. you. You know, I, I, I wish I, I wish I could relate to you. I absolutely today at a grown 41, I understand what you're saying, but I'm not going to lie. When I was, when my dad got that Groupon somewhere to sign me up for like, I think it was two karate classes. I, the way I thought I could go whoop some ass, you should have seen me walk in the streets of San Jose. I was, <laughs> I was just ready for anybody to start anything with me. I was looking for fights. So mm -hmm. I appreciate your story, man. Thank you so much for spending time talking with us. Where can we follow up with your work or maybe see some of the next projects you have coming out? Give us some information on how to follow you. Okay. So, well, I mean, the easiest is, is, is my YouTube. It's just Chuck Johnson. <laughs> Super easy. So I'm on YouTube. And then of course I'm, I'm on Insta. My company's called Quiet Flame Productions. So, and uh, one of the big things that I'm going, that I really want to try um, and do within this year. And this, this is, I mean, this is a whole nother story, but at the time that I was the most broke, right out here and I had no way to make an income and I was trying to find a way that I could keep studying fight choreography. I actually yeah. ended up working as a, I ended up working as a stripper because I was just ripped. So, which was crazy, but are you fucking as crazy? a function of that? Wait, <laughs> and what? I don't even know how to dance, right? Like I still, I still can't dance, right? We like I can't dance and I'm like, all right, so now I got to get, we started out yeah. this podcast with you explaining to me that you just struggled on stage doing some type of little dance choreography yeah. with your samurai sword. And now you're telling me that you started out as a stripper. What are you doing to me? Yeah, I mean, so like I was I was broke, right? So I was like, all right, I got to do something. And people were like, well, you're really ripped. You should probably, you could try stripping. So I had a friend get me into a strip club. Are we talking but about strip clubs about in America or in strip the, clubs in Asia? Because now you- No, this was, here in this was here in Japan. Which was even crazier and weirder, right? Like I was, you know, like in like a little thong trying to strip for, for these Japanese audiences. But but what I ended up seeing is that a lot of the a lot of the women that were because this was a club that had men and women. There was a men's floor and a women's floor. Yeah. And a lot of the women there were there via sex trafficking. You know, so because they were brought in from like Eastern Europe or they were brought in from Thailand, these were poor girls that were sold this this you know, dream of, of, you know, you can come here and you can make all this money, you know, and I saw a lot of what happened to these women, you know, so one of the big projects that I have that I really, really want to move forward with is basically I need to tell their, and this was like a decade ago, this was before there was social media, you know, so a lot of these women, when they would just disappear, they would just disappear and nobody knows what would happen to them, right? So, you know, at this point, I've got my own film production company. I've got my own stunt team. Um, 
And one of the things that I really want to do is I need to tell these women's story because nobody else did, you know? So I've been, I've been working on this project uh, for, I've got, this is my ninth draft of the script, you know, and I'm going to try to produce this film probably as a short movie, you know, within the next year or two. And basically what I would like to be able to do is, is to not just tell their story, but to do it in the context of action cinema, because action is what I know, you know? And when I think about one of the problems of documentaries is the documentaries are fantastic, but you have to be interested in the topic in order to watch it already. Right. Whereas I think, Everybody likes watching people fight. Everybody likes watching things get blown up, right? So I yes. think, you know, using action cinema as a way to kind of discuss relevant social issues could be really powerful. So, you know, that's one of the things that I would really like to see done. And I want to start with the story of sex trafficking because I saw what happened to these women firsthand. So oh trying God. to figure out how to, how to do that, you know, is one of the big challenges that I have in the next year so um well that just even means more now that we have to keep in touch because i don't know if you know but i'm a huge advocate against trafficking for the past almost 10 years now and i'm on i'm working right now with an amazing group on our second documentary focused on the victims and the two percent that survive so let's keep in touch about this because if anything I'd like to be a supportive help towards you and, and try to put the word out there when you get this script, this ninth script put together. And let's just take that yeah. conversation from there. And for anybody else who's listening to this podcast, please do follow Chuck Johnson. Uh, follow him for, through his YouTube. Where can we also get in contact with you if anybody is interested in, in plugging in with you and helping you out with this journey on uh, this, this docu that you're going to make? Okay, so um, my, my company website is just quietflame, quietflame.org. Quietflame.org. Uh, and I'll put that in the link description here. Perfect. Oh my God, you guys, Chuck Johnson, you are an amazing person. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me, sharing me your incredible life story, and then <laughs> just giving an in on everything you had to do to get to where you are right now. Uh, you are definitely an amazing, um, just an amazing influence in Asia, but also here during this time that we needed to hear just such a personal testimony. So thank you, Chuck, for spending that time with me. Oh, Jimmy, thank you too. Thank you too. I really, really, um, I'm so happy to, to meet you and, and, and to, to just hear your perspective on things as well, you know, and, Absolutely. and it's just been, an, it's been an amazing time learning from you too. So, you know, thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Let's keep in touch. And everybody else, when you listen to this podcast, please do rate and review this podcast. Let us know what you think. And do keep in touch with Chuck because I want to see this documentary come to life. And when you watch this podcast too, if you have any questions, do hit me up in the DMs at my Instagram, at the Genie Mai. Send them to me because I'm going to forward them to you, Chuck, if people have any questions, maybe some pictures to see some of this stripping uh, moment of your life. <laughs> see this yeah, I think I still got a, Yeah, I, I think I still got one or two pictures from that, so... <laughs> So if anybody Thank wants you one, so I can just DM it to him. I just, I just give it to him for free. For free. There we go, guys. Let the anybody request that wants flow a picture in. Of my butt, if anybody needs a picture of my butt, <clears throat> I'll just give it out. <laughs> so. Thank you, Chuck. Listen, honey, listen, honey. Listen, honey, listen, honey. Listen, honey, listen, honey. 
Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.